0: This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 145. Let's do this.
1: You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on
0: raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey there, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Michael Blanc. Today, we're interviewing Tim Brotz, who interestingly enough when he was 23 years old bought his first property a duplex on a credit card. Yeah, so it gets says he calls up the credit card company has a $3,000 line of credit and he says, "Hey, I'm Tim I don't have any credit, but I want a $100,000 credit line. And it went from there. So fascinating story. Today, he's at 1,500 units. He's only 33 years old, controls $90 million of assets. And just a fascinating journey on the one hand. We talk a little bit about raising money because the environment of raising money is very unique right now. There's a lot of uncertainty in the stock market. And how do we capitalize that as money raisers? How do we capitalize on that to help raise money for our deals? And, And when I say capitalize, I mean, how do we educate people to pull their money, to have the courage to pull at least some of their money out of the stock and investing it with multifamily. So we talk a lot about that, and I th- really think it's going to be helpful as you go out raising money as well. So let's get right in the show with Tim. Here we go. Tim, welcome to the show today. Michael,
1: appreciate you having me here, bud. Really appreciate all the value you bring, and I'm excited to be here.
0: That's awesome. You have a great story because you started you buying off your first property off a credit card, and you achieved somewhere like 1,300, 1,400 units by the time you were 33. So I just can't wait to get into your story. <laughs> It's pretty awesome. Let's rewind the clock a little bit down back to our younger self and this first deal. I think the duplex that you bought. First of all, before you get into the mechanics of that, why in the world did you start investing in real estate? What was going on in your life, in your young life?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, as you mentioned, I'm 33 now. And when I was going through college, 03 to 07, market was going gangbusters. Everybody's making money in real estate. And I remember hearing a story about like, one of these big home builders, somebody that I, a friend of mine was interning for them and said, Hey, they went into a meeting once. And the VP just walked in with $100 bills and said, hey, somebody give me a good idea. And even dumb ideas were getting $100 bills. And they were throwing around stupid amounts of money. And so I was like, I, I want to be in real estate. And so that, that's what motivated a 20-year-old kid. I moved out to New York City. My brother, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, originally. That's where I live now. My brother was living in New York City as a, as a federal agent. I got a job out there as a commercial real estate agent. And so I did leasing of retail spaces. And the first lease that I ever brokered was $10,000 a month, a 4% annual escalation with a 12-year term. I ran the numbers on it and I was like, this landlord is making almost $2 million off of 400 square feet for something he did one time. He's going to get paid on it for the next 12 years. Not to mention the other, you know, seven retail spaces and 15 stories of apartments above it. I was like, I'm on the wrong side of the coin. I need to be owning real estate instead of brokering real estate. And it motivated me to uh, move down to Charleston, South Carolina, and that's when I bought that first house, that duplex on my credit card.
0: Tell us about that a little bit, because uh, you know, even by uh, the duplex is, is arguably like the first multifamily. It's not technically multifamily, but it's it's more than one. All right. So why it's multiple, world, I guess so. <laughs> how in the world did you ever get around to buying a duplex on a credit card? That's, that's crazy. So, you
1: know, I'm, I'm, was 23 years old at the time and I don't have any money. Nobody's going to lend some punk 23 year old kid who's never bought a house before a bunch of private money to go buy property. So you got to start asking yourself better questions. And you know, a lot of people would say, Hey, Oh, I, I don't have access to capital. I don't have access to resources. I remember seeing a Tony Robbins talk once and he's like, resourcefulness is the ultimate resource. So regardless of not having time, not having money, not having knowledge, you can, if you're resourceful, you can figure out any of that stuff. And I think that's probably a trait that I've been able to, you know, I I never let like the negative talk shut me down. I always started asking myself questions, which I think gave me answers, got my thoughts, the juices flowing, the creative juices in my mind. And so what I ended up doing was, Hey, how can I, getting access to money. And by asking myself that question, I thought, oh, I had a credit card and a $3,000 limit on it. And so I called my credit card company. I was like, Hey, I'm going to make a big purchase. I need you guys to increase my limit like right now. And they said, how much? I said, I need a hundred thousand dollars. They're like, man, this card's been open for 15 months. Like what do you, (laughs) you don't have any credit. Like I said, it's better than no or bad credit, right? Like it's, I'm trustworthy. Like, dude, you don't have a mortgage. You don't have a, a car payment. You don't have anything. We can't give you a hundred grand, but we'll give you 15. So they give me one five and this is an 09 Now the market just tanked. And all of a sudden, like there's this flood of properties on the market for pretty inexpensive, but still cheapest house on the entire MLS was 25 grand. I went in with an offer at 12, got one back and forth, got it for $14,000 and bought it essentially with the balance transfer check
0: for my credit card. You just paid cash for the thing, cash through your credit card. Yeah, yeah. So it was <laughs>
1: it was $200 for 0% APR for six months. And so I paid 200 bucks for the money. And then I had a couple thousand dollars saved, like eight grand saved up. And I put about four or five into the building and I had to live off of the rest. And then I, I didn't know how to sell. So I just you know, I printed out a whole bunch of flyers and I made some bandit signs and I posted them around town, knocked on doors, held an open house and a neighbor came in and bought it for $33,000. So after closing costs, I made like 13 grand in 75 days in the worst real estate economy in 80 years as a 23 year old kid who's doing his first deal. So kind of got me hooked. I did, did a little bit more, did a little bit more, kept on doing it. Got into wholesaling, familiar with that whole process. Sure. and, and used uh, to get a lot of house from wholesalers.
0: People. What's I, used to get
1: lot, I used to get a lot of my houses from wholesalers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So one of the ways that I get apartment deals is from my residential wholesalers. I realized that they don't know how to underwrite a commercial deal. So they usually just discard those leads. And now, so I, I let them know I'm buying, I'm buying, I'm buying. And now they send me their deals. I just bought a deal. I'm all into it for 1.9 million. It just appraised three and a half million. So it's amazing. Like if you just Use the same strategies that I use in the residential realm to find deals. I do the same thing in the commercial realm. So,
0: what I love with that, but because like, you're glossing over some of the things, but see, you're, you're not saying I can't do this. You're asking right. question: How can I do this? And it's a totally different mindset. Mm-hmm. When you ask, start asking questions around that, things start presenting themselves. But if you say I can't do this, there's no possibility, right? Right. I will say where, where there's a will, there's a way. When there's no will, there's no way. If you at say all. I can't, it just shuts down your mind. It, it shuts down your thinking. mind. And goes to so another thought. I never would have thought of the else. idea. Oh, I'm going to call my credit card company, increase the $3,000 credit limit to 100000 Like that's an insane question or thing to do. But clearly when you ask that question, it must have popped out of the ether somewhere. Like, oh, that's a good idea. Let me call up my credit card company. If you don't ask, you <laughs> never know. You that's know? right. That, that's right. Yeah. there's That's a- awesome. So you, started, you, you flipped the house. You said, this is pretty cool. And then you did more. of You got some wholesaling. At one point, did you start getting in? Because this was all flipping stuff, really. Yep. At what point, did you get into buy and hold stuff?
1: Yeah. Eventually, what happened was you start meeting people who are active or they see what you're doing. They, they realize that you know what a good deal is. And they see your work ethic. And they might have access to money, but maybe not the bandwidth to take on any more projects. So that's what happened with me is I met some people who said, hey, I got the money, but I don't have maybe the knowledge or the experience or the bandwidth to take on any more projects. Or, you know, I, I haven't gotten involved in real estate, but you obviously know what you're doing. How about I put up the money, you do the work, and we'll figure out some sort of equity split. And so I did that. I had a bunch of small investors and then eventually had a couple of brothers with another big business. They put almost a million bucks with me in a span of a, a couple of years and I turned it into like, and we did everything. We, we flipped houses, high end flips, low end flips, single family rentals, duplexes, triplexes. And then I bought my first eight unit building six years ago this month. And so I buy that, I fix it all up. It was stupid cheap in a C-class area of town. I couldn't lose on it. You know, I buying an eight unit building for 30 grand. And then I put another 50 into it, rented it all out. My cap rate on it was like 33% or something insane. So, you know, like, like you do that. And then all of a sudden I, I reflected back on my business after that first like year of doing work with these guys, after we flipped houses and did low end rentals, single family rentals, apartment buildings. And I looked at like, where are we making the most money? And this is, this is really important. I think this is one of the biggest has really helped me navigate and, and shortcut versus just not reflecting. I take the entire week between Christmas and New Year's off and I just goal set and I take minimum one day, a quarter off. Don't I, don't I unplug everything and I just work on goals and make sure and I ask myself questions like, what am I doing? Is it the highest and best use of my time? Is it the highest, best use of my team's time? Is the highest return on our time, highest return on our investment? Where are the most headaches coming from in my business? Where are the least amount of headaches? Where's the most money coming from? Where's the least amount of money? And I just refine every 30 days. And if you keep on refining and cutting out the fat and just focusing on those, the higher revenue generating activities and the higher revenue generating assets, then eventually this stuff compounds pretty significantly. So that's what I ended up doing. And I realized apartments was what just met my long-term vision better and it was more scalable The financing was easier and all those kinds of things. So we doubled down on apartments, built up a portfolio of a little over 100, 150 units, something like that. And then that partnership actually went south. We ended up going separate ways. There was a uh, kind of a bad breakup. And we're friends now, but this is one of those, you know, typical partnerships. I usually advise people against getting in a partnership because there's always that balance of who's doing the work, who's bringing what value. Life happens. People have kids, people get married, people, you know, move. And there's too many variables that can shift. And everything sounds good on the onset, on the front end, but things just shift. You know, people change uh, or or situations and circumstances change. So that ended up, we had to liquidate everything. That happened about three years ago. And I've been doing my own thing for the past about three and a half years. So building up my portfolio, I'm at a little over... Uh, I'm at about 1500 units right now. I have a 35 unit closing on Thursday and I have a 407 unit closing next Friday. So I'll be at right around 2000 units in 42 months. And um, it's it's amazing how at first you crawl and then you walk and then you run and, and the way that this, this thing can compound if you just keep on doing the activities in a consistent manner and a consistent basis of finding deals and finding money and how this can, can generate. You know, I think being in the early part of the year right now a lot of people are goal setting and and have some some big ambitions for me what i've realized is i always overestimate what i can accomplish in a year but i grossly underestimate what i can accomplish in 36 months or 48 months or you know and and i think i think that's something to for people to be aware of that when you go to the gym you don't see results in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days you see them 120, 180 days down the road and people are like, oh, you look good. Michael, you've been working out? Yeah, you look a little more trim, a little bit more buff, hey, awesome. And you're like, dude, I've been working out every day, an hour and a half a day, six days a week for the past six months, sweating, bleeding, crying, achy muscles, icing them. And you're just now seeing results. And I think that's very analogous to
0: what happens in business too, right? Yeah. You're talking about the the various uses of your time and what do you think right now is the best use of your time? Some activities versus others. Raising money. hundred percent. I think if you control the money, you control the deal.
1: And I think finance is the industry that commands all other industries. So if you focus, I'm to a place where I have a chief operating officer. I have a chief legal officer. I have an acquisitions team. I have a project management team and a, uh, kind of like an asset management team and oversees the property managers. And so I've been able to, and that didn't all happen. You know, initially I hired an assistant and then that assistant turned into, you know, my asset manager. And then all of a sudden I hired uh, another buddy who ended up being my project manager and just overseeing the contractors. Then I hired another buddy who ended up being my acquisitions guy. And then I made him my COO. And then I, had an, I hired an intern who turned in my acquisitions. So it's like, it was very step by step. I didn't, I didn't just like come into this big organization. And I found that my time is best spent raising money. One is, again, finance is the industry that commands all other, other industries. I love real estate, but if I control money, I can also invest in other projects or other assets or other businesses as well. If you control the money, you can control your entire organization too. You control the deal he who has the money makes the rules, right? That kind of a thing. And so I'm a big believer in raising capital. And that should be the last thing that you let go of as you're automating your business and building your business. And it's also the most important because you want to let relationship and make sure your investors are being taken care of because you missed an investor payment or somebody doesn't get paid back the way that they're supposed to, or poor expectations are set. And that can really sour your reputation in this industry.
0: You talked about hiring a contractor early on and I went through the same thing. You hire some assistant and this grows into that. And and every time you hire someone, you hem and haw over it because at the time when you're hiring that person, it actually costs a lot of money to bring that person on. Yeah, Talk a little bit more about the consideration going in. So even a beginner syndicator or a, uh, should probably think about bringing someone on. And, and if so, what kind of help should one think of bringing on and why is that a good idea?
1: It's a really good question. So I run some masterminds and I plug into a lot of masterminds and I see, you know, early entrepreneurs, like the hardest growth for me, this took me like two years to end up like understanding. I couldn't figure out how people built big businesses. Like I'm a solopreneur, I'm doing all the work myself. I'm doing accounting, I'm doing marketing, I'm doing project management, I'm doing asset management, I'm doing acquisitions, I'm trying to raise the money, I'm trying to structure the deal, I'm signing on loans, you know, I'm going to the bank. I couldn't figure out like how the hell does somebody go out and build a big business? Like how do they build this big team? And it starts with one and it starts with one hire. I remember going to my first mastermind. It was about almost four years ago and I showed up. And I'm like, and I asked that question and the guy in the room, he goes, you just need to hire an assistant, get the low level stuff off your plate. Not that it's low level. It's just not the highest and best use of your time and um, have somebody else handle those tasks for 10,
0: 12, $15 an hour. What are some and, of those tasks, Tim? Go, describe, because I think some people are, might be confused about what they could potentially outsource. So let's go into that in a second. Let me let me talk about mindset shift
1: first. So the year before, I had made a little over $100,000 wholesaling deals and all that kind of stuff. So when I sat in this mastermind in February of 2015, and the guy tells me, go spend $35,000 on an assistant. That's a lot. I'm like, dude, I don't think you realize that's like 30% of my income, you know? And he goes, you can't look at it that way. He said, look at it as $2,500 to $3,000 a month. Hire somebody, try it out for 30 days, 60 days. Worst case scenario, it doesn't work out. You spend five or six grand and you part ways. He goes, I'm telling you, you're going to see such a better return on your time that you're going to want to hire everybody. And so that's what I ended up doing. So I came back from that mastermind in February of 2015. I hired an assistant March of 2015 and I had made like a dollars $130,000 a year before. I made 400 grand the next 10 months because I had somebody else handling the activities that were not the highest and best use of my time. Highest and best use of my time were the things that are close to the revenue line. So imagine there's a revenue line. It's the actual things and you can boil down in every, any business. It's usually, you know, three to five things are the highest return. It's usually finding money, finding deals, you know, and actually like cashing checks or something, you know? so, For me, I hung on to those kinds of things and I staffed out everything else, like literally my laundry or my dry cleaning and like that kind of stuff. I staffed out, I staffed out getting my car washed. I staffed out, you know, all the marketing type stuff that is important, but somebody you can, you can automate a lot of that, that stuff with, if you have an assistant going to the bank and cashing checks, going to the post office and delivering mail and checking the post, the PO box, like all that kind of stuff was the first kind of things. And then I ended up outsourcing inspections and that saved a ton of time. This is when I was in the single family realm and that's transitioned over to multifamily too. But I put together like this three page condition report and I had my assistant go out to properties, walk a property and take a hundred photos of it, the inside, the outside. And on this condition report, it literally mentioned everything. So it would talk about Hey, what does the driveway look like? What does the sidewalk look like? What does the walkway up to the house look like? What's a porch foundation look like? And that's all the concrete stuff. How's the landscaping? Are there any trees? And so it made it stupid simple that anybody could read this sheet, make notes on it, and then take 100 pictures so when they came back to me, they could upload it and I could look at the condition report, look at the pictures, and be able to make a decision on that house and how much work it needs just based on those two things. But think about how much time that saved. 30 minutes from driving to the property, 30 minutes from driving back, an hour spent at the property. Putting the all the information together is another probably hour. So it saved me three, four hours of time to outsource that for, and it cost me what, 15 bucks, 12 bucks an hour, 15 bucks an hour. And so I was able to pay $45 essentially for somebody else to go out and do that. And then I could, how many phone calls can you bang out to other motivated sellers or Private lenders and investors in that regard. So it's that uh, yeah, it was a big, big deal for me.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome. I think uh, we can all figure out what we can delegate at any level. Whether you're just starting out, or even in your case, uh, if you get a little bigger, you know, hemming and hawing over a COO. Oh my gosh, it's a first six figure hire. Possibly that's really scary place to be. It's the same thing, but different. Like a different, a different level. So, so, so let's go back to that real quick. So I have a COO and a C. L O Chief Legal Officer that
1: handles all my syndication documents, securities docs, all that stuff. And now he's I'm handing off the private money lending, so I can just go out and do marketing. And so these two guys are really like the engines that run my business now, and I'm the fuel for the engine. You know, in the marketing piece, I'm out there meeting with people, building relationships. And then as far as the work goes, of you know the logistics of collecting the money from the investor and having him sign all the paperwork that goes to my CLO for any deal flow and anything like that it goes to my COO. So How do you bring on somebody of that caliber, a six figure, maybe even a multiple six figure? I asked myself that question and it led me down this, well, I could pay them 100 to $200,000 a year. That's a big nut to cover, you know, especially when you're growing your business and getting. And so I thought, how can I attract a highly qualified person without having to take on a ton of overhead? And what I just kind of figured out is I pay them a salary. Everybody in my company makes $50,000, $48,000 a year, including myself. And then I do profit share on how well the company does across the whole thing. And so based on what the role is, or the position, they get a certain amount of profit share based on how well the company does. So if we make, for easy numbers, a million dollars net profit, and my COO has 15% profit share, he gets a bonus of $150,000. So now I can afford a $200,000 employee, and he's motivated also to the point where he wants the, the company to be profitable. And by doing that, it takes a lot of things off my plate, and visions are aligned. We're in the boat rowing in the same direction, kind of a thing.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot, and it kind of limits your the, the the overhead. We're combining that with equity as well, so we have bonus program, but it's there's vested equity over time. Kind so, of so I,
1: I do a profit share,
0: so yeah. it's not equity. Yeah, and then eventually,
1: what I'll end up doing is bringing them on as as an equity partner That's invested right. in uh, as long as they're with me for you know ten years, fifteen years, something exactly. like
0: that. But yeah. right now it's just based on cash flow. Profit share. That's great. You talked about your best use of your time is is money raising. How has uh, the money raising environment or strategy shifted for you over the last few months? Yeah, um,
1: it is. (laughs) It gets easier and easier to raise capital. One, because the, the market's good, the economy's been good, people are making money, their stocks are going up. And so they want to go and invest in other things. And so they wanted, so it's been pretty good for the past couple of years. Really the past couple months, now that the, the market is not going up and people are thinking we're at the top and people are afraid of what's going on and you see the volatility that's in the stock market, there's a lot of people who want to get their money out of the stock market and into hard assets. And that's a huge opportunity that we have as active real estate operators and syndicators is to help people pull their money out of the marketplace, put it into something that's backed by, real estate that has cash flow in place that will appreciate over time and and be able to ride out that storm of that economic uncertainty and, and political uncertainty and everything that that else is coming down the, the pipeline right now and so you know I, I just ask everybody one question how's the market treating you you know and then you wait for an avalanche of complaints about it going up and down and you know it's easy to have a conversation about that because like we have control over our assets over our, over real estate we don't have control over the stock market. You can't control if Volkswagen is cheating emissions tests, or if you know Elon Musk smokes a joint on live television and the stock drops by fifteen percent. You can't control any of that stuff. Uh, you can't control trade talks with China and how that's going to affect certain industries. Like that's all out of our control, which means the stock market's out of our control. If you got a lot of time and you got stupid money and you just you don't want to think about it, then yeah, go invest in, in mutual funds or something. But To me, you're not taking responsibility over your money if you do that. I think by connecting with guys like us who are experts and ninjas in our field who know multifamily better than anybody else in the country, it's one of those things where their money's way safer with us being able to direct it and make sure it's backed by a hard asset that has cash flow coming in. And the reality is, multifamily real estate is, in my opinion, hands down, I don't think there's anything else that is as insulated. As multifamily, like B class, C plus B class real estate. And when when the economy is good, everybody can afford B class apartment buildings. When the economy is bad, all those A class renters move into B class areas, and we're very very insulated. The financing's in place;
0: it's non recourse. Like there's there's so many
1: things that limit the risk for us.
0: We have a really exciting message, and I share your the enthusiasm you have because I know I, I there is no better investment than multifamily syndications you know, uh, above average returns, incredible tax advantage is amazing and then you know look how it performed in in the great recession it's hysterical we had we have a 545 unit under contract in el paso right now and we got the privilege of hanging out with one of the two partners he's like 80 years old you know his hands shaking a little bit and he's just talking about his life like he survived the savings and lows crisis you know the recession he's got ten thousand units and he's got you know gazillionaire it reminds me of warren buffett a little bit you know dresses like he's poor and i said i said i said, bill i said bill how did you survive the last recession and he starts he also likes trading stocks uh, which is funny so he goes he goes about describing how he, he put in uh, cash stops and he was in cash for a while then he started tra- selling put options and it was fascinating after 10 minutes i said bill fascinating but how did your real estate fare he goes i don't remember it was a non-event <laughs> wow I'm like, are you kidding me right now? I was like, this message needs to get out, right? So this guy had yeah. thousands of units and he doesn't remember what happened because nothing it, nothing happened. So,
1: yeah. I just that's, I just love that. That's powerful stuff. You know, I mean, if you're investing for cash flow, it's way safer than investing for speculation, you know? If you're yeah. buying and developing to resell and hoping that the values maintain in, in 18 or 24 months when you're going to resell townhouses or condos or something, you're going to get punched in the gut pretty hard because you can't, that's all speculation based. And the guys who lost all their money and all their net worth, which was all on paper, Fugazi, Pugazi, you know, fairy tale dust back in uh, 2008, 2009, were all speculative investors. And the people that I've learned and I met and, and I knew that were able to ride out that storm were the people who bought for cash flow and they had tenants paying their rent every single month that covered all their operating expenses that covered all their debt service and put cash in their pocket at the end of the day. And they were able to ride out any storm. And when the market came back with a vengeance over the past couple of years, they could either refinance, they could sell, they could do whatever they wanted to do. And their net worth, I mean, exponentially grew.
0: Yeah, that's it's actually pretty cool. So Let's talk about some of the past investment stuff because it is, it is really exciting. And I, and I kind of share your excitement about it. So as a past investor, there, what they should be thinking, they're, they're obviously concerned about the prospect of the stock market. What is it? your advice to a past investor who's trying to figure out what to do with their hard-earned money? So,
1: you know, obviously there's there's people with money in the stock market and it's more of an education. It's not really trying to sell somebody. It's just educating them that there's better options out there. A lot of people just don't realize that there's other options. They don't know that you can take your 401k or IRA and roll it into a self-directed retirement vehicle and invest it into real estate. They don't know that that's even out there. So just, it's more of an education piece and walking somebody through that whole thing. And I think one of the big things with raising private money that people don't realize is a lot of people go and try to raise money when they need money and they get kind of desperate. There's a desperation that comes off with it. So you think about when you're hunting versus fishing, when you hunt, what happens to the prey? Runs away, right? Versus when you fish, you're putting a lure in the water and the fish come to you. And so I think it's, I think raising private money is more of a fishing strategy of just putting lures in the water and letting people know what you do, how you do it. And even when you don't need any money, so that way, when the time comes that you do need money, you can pick up the phone, make that phone call. They're already educated. There's no learning curve. The relationship's already built and now it's just numbers. What are the economics of it? And so I tell people, you know, investors look for three things. One is collateral. Like what is, what's the asset that we're investing in? Real estate, B-class apartment buildings, at least for me, is what I invest in. It's the most insulated asset. It's easy to educate them. It's really probably the least of my investors' concerns. Number two is the return on investment. Is the reward worth the risk? you know, the perceived risk of the deal. And so you got to make sure that you're you're paying them something that's better than the marketplace, better than what they they can get elsewhere and perceive the risk as low and the return is better than uh, what they can get somewhere else. And three, which is the most important one, is the credibility and the fortitude of the borrower, meaning you and me and any other syndicator who's raising capital is, you have to realize like, these private lenders are asking themselves, the main question is, does this person, meaning you as the syndicator, have the fortitude to repay me my money? Do I think this person can deal with a storm of crap that comes through economically, politically, market shifts, whatever, like operationally? Do I think that they're going to be able to get through all that stuff and repay me my money and do what they say that they're going to do? And if so, I found that that is the most important thing. Are you a good steward of capital? And by demonstrating that and educating people, it demonstrates the credibility that you have in the marketplace of being able to navigate any sort of of adversities that might come across your plate. So for me, it's just educating people and letting them know what I'm doing and educating them. And eventually, they bite. They bite the lure and they come in. Um, there's, I was just on a, another podcast, a good buddy. Everybody knows him in real estate. He's, he's a big name. And um, I've known him for 10 years. I bought his course 10 years ago and I was on a podcast of his. And he's like, hey, man, I, I see what you're doing, man. I, I got a few hundred thousand dollars a month coming in, like just excess cash flow. Like we, we got to talk. I need to put some, I need to put it somewhere and I, and I like what you're doing. So it's just, it's just one of those things where I've never pursued him. I've never asked him for any money, but I make sure he knows what I'm doing. And I make sure he knows like how I do it, what I do it, why I do it. And they'll come to the conclusion on their own that it's the right thing to do for them and for their capital and for their legacy wealth that they want to pass down there to kids, that, that it's, it's the right thing to do to invest with you and, or, or in your project or whatever that looks like. So I'm very intentional about having conversations with everybody I talk to about money, how the market's treating them, what kind of returns they're getting right now. And um, from a genuine standpoint of, let me help you with your your wealth and your personal finances, because I believe that much in my product also, and in in what we do, you know, and and there's obviously self-interest in it, which there is isn't everything pretty much that everybody does, is it helps me build my business and employ other people and, and contribute to society and clean up neighborhoods, and, you know, all those kinds of things. So it's a win-win for everybody, but I'm, I'm such a big believer in it. I'm very intentional about having those conversations. I'm not bashful at all about talking in dollars and decimals to, to people.
0: Yeah, I love the hunting versus fishing analogy. It's, and it's quite a, quite a bit different, right? Because a lot of people raise money when they have to, and it doesn't work. It just doesn't work versus no. how can I uh, provide value to other people? In this case, the guy's freaking out a little bit about the stock market. Well, how can I educate them about alternate investments? And you do that over time. And then at one point you actually get a deal and you do make that phone call. Like, man, Tim has been so great. He's really been helping me a lot. I'm going to give him a shot. Right. Yep. And it takes a lot more time and it, it appears less effective. And this is why you got to start doing it now and not waiting until you actually have a deal under contract, which is, yep. which is fabulous. So, Hey, Tim, um, how can people connect with you?
1: I'm pretty active on social media. I'm on Facebook. I'm always trying to give out free content and free education. I, I walk through a lot of my deals and how I structure them, and give out pointers on how to raise money, how to find off-market deals, all that kind of stuff. So connect with me on Facebook. Hit me up on there. My website's cleturnkey.com/blog. Like, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of blog stuff and posts that I write on there, and, and videos that I do on there too. And uh, yeah, that's probably the best two ways. But I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, first of all, thanks for coming on for the show and thank you for all the content you're putting out and sharing kind of your success and experience. So definitely check out Tim's website. And uh, so thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, brother. I appreciate all the value you're giving and uh, making a big difference. So keep doing what you're doing, man. Thank you oh, man, so good. So I love the hunting versus uh, fishing analogy, you know, and you're constantly trying to provide value for your investors. And I love the question, hey, how's the stock market treating you, you know, and letting it let it kind of rip. We have a very unique time in the market where it's actually been pretty good. People have made money, but there's a lot of uncertainty and fear out there. And we have a great product, guys. Multifamily is just so good for a passive investor above average returns. He's got cash flow built into the investment. That's that's outrageous. Uh, it's got an incredible tax incentives. I mean, ask your CPA about uh, accelerated depreciation, cost segregation. Like you probably won't even pay any taxes on on the income you make, which is just just crazy. And then the risk profile uh, of how multifamily performs in a recession is just uh, it's just unbelievable. There's nothing like it out there in the world. You have great tax incentives with oil, for example, and that's fantastic. But there's no cash flow, and it's highly speculative. If the if the well if they don't actually hit oil, you can lose the entire investment. That just doesn't happen in multifamily. Family, And I just really love that. So if you're a passive investor out there, and you're listening to this, and you're looking for a, a an alternative to the stock market, there actually is one there's there's a variety of alternatives, but multifamily syndications are just so good. I did mean, I, you can't beat them. If you want to find out more about what we're doing, go to the michaelblanc.com forward slash invest, and sign up for investor portal, And uh, you're going to get a whole new set of content that everybody else does not see just really educating you about the different kind of opportunities multifamily, but there's others There's self storage and there's mobile home parks alternatives to the stock market is really what it is, man, you just don't control the stock market. But I can tell you from experience, pulling your money out from the stock market is like, I mean, a nail biter, like just getting over that hump is amazing. I'm not even saying you should pull out all your money out of the stock market, but some of it. So just educate yourself, find out more. It's just a really cool thing to do. And we have a lot of great deal flow. And there's a lot of great deals out there. They're hard to find, but the good operators and we're one of them have the ability to find really good deals. So just take a look at at the michaelblank.com forward slash invest and see how you can get involved. And if you want to raise money, if you want to be a money raiser, you want to syndicate money, take a look at some of our programs. We have the ultimate guide to buying apartment buildings with private money. Uh, and that comes with a, with a live event as well. And we have some mentoring programs as well. That's at uh, themichaelblanc.com forward slash coaching. Check that out if you think that will help you. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to this. I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for
1: listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There you can also download the free ebook. The secret to raising money to buy your first apartment building. Till next time.